the forgiveness factor. And what we want to do today is, is begin to explore issues regarding the role and the importance of forgiveness in this whole scheme of trust and betrayal, which is such a core part of our human existence. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 gives this exhortation to believers in Christ, and it comes on the heels of the other material in Ephesians, where the apostle has expressed to God's people who they are and what riches of grace and glory and blessing are theirs. And, and he's telling God's people here, he's saying, listen, this is how you live in light of who you are. And so in Ephesians four thirty-one and 32, he says this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be what? Put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and what does it say? Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Foundational to our existence as the people of God that we live and walk in forgiveness, that we embrace the forgiveness factor. Not always as easy as it seems, not always as simple, not always in the way that we think it is done. And so this morning as we go through this series entitled Trust and, and Betrayal, We've been exploring this universal issue of betrayal, and we've been looking at ways that we might find healing from the betrayal and the broken trust that are really a part of all of our lives. We have been reminded in the last couple of weeks that while we want to own our own pain and acknowledge honestly that we have been betrayed, we, we are kept from judgmentalism by our realization that we all are also betrayers. We share this common ancestry with the rest of the human family, all who are subject to the sin of Adam, and the Word of God declares to all of God's children that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that includes you and me and everybody else. And so our challenge has been to acknowledge the fact that we have been betrayed at some point in our lives, to realize our own propensity towards sin and then to develop a healthy skepticism that will allow us to extend trust while at the same time protecting our hearts from those who do not merit our trust or those who have not yet been tested. Now, we all live with this certain reality, some, something, something that someone referred to as the sandpaper effect. It's not that all of us have endured or experienced major betrayals, major crises in our lives. It's not that any of us have had major sins perpetrated against us, although many of us, us may have, some of us may not have. But all of us throughout the course of our lives are subject to the sandpaper effect. And that while the, the major betrayals occur less frequently and we may or may not be a victim of those, there are these thousand little betrayals that take place around us and that wear on us. It reminds me of microaggressions, which is the, the, the little subtle ways that people act aggressively towards you that happen all the time and are almost imperceptible, but if you kind of have an eye for them, you begin to see them. Well, we, there are all these micro-betrayals. It's things like when the, when the when the Maytag repairman tells you he'll be there at 1 o'clock and he doesn't show that day. 
when, when, when the person at the cleaners promised that they have your alteration ready by, by 4 o'clock on the day, on a given day because you have an engagement the next day and they forgot to even do it. And you say, well, that's just negligence. Yeah, but negligence is a form of betrayal. When things are promised and not done, when promises are made and not kept, when people do things that, that really defy and really, uh, really work against our trust, it's a kind of sandpaper effect, and it wears on us all because we have this ongoing trust issue, and that's why in, in, in our society there are all these mechanisms that have to be put in place to help us to protect ourselves. So now if you're going to call somebody to work on your house, you go to Angie's List and you check them out, or if you're going to engage in certain services, you go to Yelp and you check their ratings because you want to find out. And it's funny, isn't it? That stuff is, is interesting because whenever you check reviews... It's so funny because you got like, it could be like 500 positive, and there's always this one guy. Everybody's like, this is the most wonderful establishment in the world. This is the greatest restaurant, and there's always this one. This place is the worst. It was terrible. The service was rude. The food tasted like trash. And it was just terrible. And so I'd learned to take reviews with a grain of salt. But we do this. It, these are valuable mechanisms to allow us to, to, to kind of find out if, if people and institutions and businesses and entities are trustworthy because there is this wearing down of our trust that takes place because of all of these micro-betrayals that, that go on. And so they try our patience. They test our souls. But uh, to live a life, uh, to live life rather to its fullest, We've got to come to that place where we learn to trust others reasonably, despite the things that wear, and, uh, wear down and erode our trust. Now, the fact is that we live in an abrasive world in which betrayal does erode our trust. But the question becomes not just how uh, can we trust, but more importantly, in learning to trust, how, we can, how can we forgive those who break our trust? How can we forgive those who break our trust. How can we forgive those who betray us? Talk about three things. Let's begin this morning by talking about number one. Let's go back. Grudges, the scars of betrayal. Grudges. All of you, I hear phones. Oh, okay. Grudges, the scars. It's in the bag. I feel so betrayed. Grudges. Grudges, the scars of betrayal. Now, I don't know, maybe when you were in school, you may have read this great classic novel by Herman Melville, Moby Dick, you know, the whale story. If you've read it, you'll understand why I would suggest that uh, a grudge is, uh, like Moby Dick, the whale, a, a grudge is a killer whale in our lives. You hear me? If you've read the story, you will remember that the story is one of revenge and obsession. Captain Ahab, some of you always think of some biblical character, but Captain Ahab, uh, a whaler. That's a cool name. What's your name? Ahab. How come nobody names kids? <laughs> Ishmael. No, I don't know about that one. Captain Ahab, a whaler, loses a, a leg to a white whale. Um, as the ship returns with the peg-leg captain, um, anger begins to grow within him, and Captain Ahab's anger grows into this fixation. You hear what I'm saying? This fixation on revenge against this whale. And as his hatred grows, 
so does his lack of wisdom. And I would suggest to you and I that that same dynamic will work for us as well as our hatred and resentment and, and our grudges grow, so does our lack of wisdom. And so on the next whale hunting expedition, um, this driving force in Captain Ahab's soul begins to override his good judgment and put, he, he puts himself, his crew and his ship into insanely perilous situations. And so common sense becomes replaced by this wild overruling passion for killing this white whale. Everything else becomes secondary. As the captain hurls man and ship into the perilous seas uh, of hate, the opportunity to take vengeance finally arrives and the, the white whale is within Ahab's grasp. A chase ensues for three days and now the crew's members realize that Ahab's folly may mean their doom. Not the whale's demise, but their own. Here's a quote from Starbuck. He says, Oh, Ahab, not too late it is, even now, the third day, to desist. See, Moby Dick seeks thee not. It is thou, thou that madly seekest him. But it's too late. And Ahab's desire for revenge only grows deeper. Ignoring every danger, and in the end, the ship is lost, the crew except one is lost. And Ahab loses both his quest and his life. In the end, the white whale has won. Now, Moby Dick is the ultimate story of this dark path down which hatred can lead us. We may assume that revenge and hatred will bring us some sort of satisfaction or salvation. Do you hear me? But as in the case of Captain Ahab, they only bring us spiritually, if not sometimes literally, certain death. Now, it's far easier to allow revenge and hatred to grow in our soul rather than taking a more forgiving and I might add, self-examining course. Hatred is the great deceiver. It can make us feel powerful. It can make us feel as though we're back in control. It helps us to hide the shame. But if we continue on the path to revenge, it becomes an obsession pulling us away from the most important things in life. First and foremost, our relationship with God. Now there's another way to look at life, and by way of contrast... Take a look with me at these words from Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. He writes this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And in this moment, you just, in your mind, pose the question, what in the world does that have to do with what we're talking about today? Well, let me put it to you like this. Despite the kind of crop failure that you've experienced when you've sown seeds of trust and received only betrayal in return, we come to this mindset where we say, no matter whether I give and don't get back, no ma- whether I love and don't get loved in return, whether no matter what happens in life, if my field ends up fallow, my 
land ends up dry, if I don't get the return that on, on the investments I've made, I make a decision in life to trust God, and I come to this conclusion, no matter what, if there's no figs on the tree, if there's no olives on the tree, if, there's no, if the flocks are cut off in the fold, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. In other words, we need this kind of freedom where we find satisfaction and we find help and we find joy and comfort in God and we make up our mind that no matter what we've gone through and no matter how people have treated us and no matter how to what degree or to what extent we may have been betrayed we make up we make the decision that we will rejoice in the Lord and will take joy in the God of our salvation. We will nurture our relationship with God. We will be informed by his word and by revealed truth and we will make sure to put God first no matter what. It's a decision you make. It's a choice you make. And you and I have to make that choice. We need this kind of freedom. We need the ability to find joy in God even when we've been disappointed. Because let me break it to you like this. And as, as, a, as a father, I can tell you with great authority, you will be disappointed. Fathers, tell your children, teach your children, help set them up. Don't set them up for failure. Don't, don't allow them to go into life wearing rose-colored glasses, thinking that if you always do your best, everybody will always love you. And if you always do the right thing, everything will always turn out good for you. No, life is filled with disappointments. Life is filled with, 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 with setbacks. But we need the ability to find joy in God even when we've been disappointed. When institutions and individuals have failed us, we need to be free from this leftover residue of past betrayals. Think about it. To grasp how important this is, talking about this issue of residue and how residue will corrupt. You know, if you're going to drink a cup of coffee and you have a mug sitting on your counter at home and you've used that mug to maybe drink some orange juice a little earlier... Or, or maybe I had, I had this one mug in my kitchen that I had actually had kept some TSP in, you know, a trisodium phosphate, you know, the caustic cleaner. And it was a reason I was doing that because I had the big thing of TSP and I had kept it in, and I was getting ready to drink out of this cup and I said, you know, I need to make sure that this cup is washed. Because if there's some residue of T- TSP in this cup, I don't know what th- that outcome would be. I don't know. It might be harmless and innocuous or it may be lethal and in our lives there is residue and how many of you know that residue can taint what goes in and what comes what happens going forward a good example of this is what happens in second marriages oftentimes second and third and fourth and fifth marriages is that oftentimes isn't it something that 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 many times um second marriages are polluted by leftover betrayal from the first marriage huh so rather than bear these scars of, of grudge, rather than allow ourselves to carry these grudges, how much better would it be to ask God to perform spiritual plastic surgery and to remove the scars, to remove the grudges and the resentment than to retain the scars and find ourselves incapacitated in subsequent relationships and incapacitated in our relationship with God, unable to trust others and ultimately unable to trust ourselves. Grudges, the scars of betrayal. And then there is the issue of getting over it. The forgiveness function. Now I know oftentimes when we think someone's been mired in a given emotion or a given sorrow or 
sees no grief too long, we sometimes callously tell them, hey, you need to get over it. Sometimes we have no right to say that because everybody has their own time, their own time frame for grieving. Everybody has their own, their own process. Everybody goes through the steps of grief at their own pace, and so it's difficult. Now, every now and then there might be somebody you really do need to give that little kick in the seat of the pants and say, you know, because sometimes some folks do need to get over it. But you have to be careful who you say that to, and you need to make sure that you're prayed up and that you have a, a strong bridge of relationship with somebody that you can speak that. Don't, don't say that kind of thing to people lightly. But we need to find a way, no matter what it is, to get over it. And that's where the forgiveness function comes into play because forgiveness is essential in healing the hurts of betrayal. But I want to suggest to you this morning that forgiveness is not easy. It requires staring directly into the face of betrayal, staring directly into the face of the betrayer, internalizing the full extent of the hurt and pain, and then finally not holding it against anyone. It's not easy. But it's the only path that leads to freedom, the only path that leads to healing, the only path that leads to joy. Now, I want to talk about the forgiveness function in terms of three things. Number one, forgiving others. Number two, forgiving ourselves. And then finally, number three, forgiving God. But let's talk for a moment about forgiving others. And this seems very pedestrian and very, very much a given. It's one of those things where if I say to you as Christians, we need to, we must forgive each other. All of you would say to me, we know that. I, if I look at, in the mirror and say to myself, I say back to myself in the mirror, I know that. But the question remains, do we really know it as we should? Do we really understand it? Have we resolved to do it? Are we willing to go through the, the steps? Are we willing to sometimes do the hard work that, that is necessary in order to get to this thing called forgiveness. So I want to just review a few verses with you. We're talking about forgiving others. And let me say this. The, the, the forgiveness piece for us as Christians is a fundamental foundation of our relationship with God and our eternal soul. What you'll see even in, in the few verses that we'll run through in a moment is it's really, it's going to be almost impossible to be a Christian and to not extend forgiveness to those who wrong us. It's as though in the New Testament, Christianity, a vibrant Christian faith or a Christian faith at all, discipleship is measured or, or quantified or, 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 or evaluated in terms of our willingness to forgive others who sin against us because the issue is this, that our standing in God is not based upon our works and our merit and our goodness, but is based upon the fact that God has forgiven us. That's why in Ephesians, Paul says, forgive others just as God in Christ forgave you. So it, it's fundamental. If we don't get anything else, you may never get the hand claps right. You may never learn all the phrases that Christian folks use. You may never, there might be a lot of finer points of biblical doctrine and theology that you don't understand. There are things, there might be issues about biblical teaching that you don't even know anything about. Do you know what? If you learn, if you can learn to forgive, if you can apply this concept of forgiveness, you will be far along in your Christian walk and you will have everything you need. And so we, we have, there's a call upon us to forgive others. Matthew 6, 14 and 15 in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I don't have time to delve into all the dynamics of that verse, so I'll just let it lay there and let you think about it. We'll just kind of sit with it, right? Jesus is saying, in essence, that there's a degree to which your forgiveness is predicated upon your, your willingness to forgive others because the thing about it is, kind of goes like this. In order, in order to receive forgiveness of God, how do you approach God? Is it like, God, I'm here and I'm ready for you to save me because I, I, I'm bringing the stuff. I'm bringing, I'm bringing the goodness. I'm bringing the heart. I'm bringing the love, Lord. You know, I'm, the, I'm your man. So, I mean, you got to save me because I'm good. Nobody ever gets saved by declaring their own goodness. No one ever comes into faith in Christ by, by, by bringing their merits. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cl- cross I, I cling. No, what happens is if we come to God for salvation, essentially what we're crying out is, God, have mercy on me, for I'm a sinner. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Lord, I confess I have sinned against you. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned short, uh, and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And Lord, I'm coming to you and I'm, and I'm admitting that I'm a sinner and I need your help. The problem is that it's hard for somebody who dares to hold grudges against other people and hold trespasses against other, others. It's hard for them to genuinely and honestly, I don't care what they tell you, how many sinner's prayers they say on, on a Sunday afternoon at an altar call, how many decision cards they fill out at somebody's crusade. I don't care how many times they've been baptized. But when, if you think that you have the right to hold things against other people when God didn't hold your sin against you, when God sent Christ to the cross to die for you, then it puts you in a precarious position because you are not the kind of person who will genuinely and really fall upon the grace of God. There is a bit of your, of, 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 in, your in your thinking, there's a bit of this, this idea that, that I, I'm, I'm saved because I didn't do to them what they did to me, and so I'm, oh God, I must be cool with God. It's just hard to come to God and God will call you out on it as we see in Jesus' teaching in, the, in a parable that he gave. God will call you out when we come to him, Lord, have mercy on me. And he says, well, why didn't you have mercy on your brother? Jesus, that's what Jesus says, right? Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another. This is the way the Christian life is lived. Bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you must also forgive and say you would might want to consider it Ephesians 4 31 and 32 let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you and then 1 Corinthians 13 4 through 6 Describing love here in the love chapter. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Luke 6, 37. Jesus says it. Don't come back. Jesus, oh, you're getting a little fast here. Jesus says this. He says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and what? Luke 17, 3 and 4, 3 and 4. I like the way Jesus uh, prefaces this statement. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And now as we go forward in the next moment, we'll see that there's, there, there's something here that will lead us down a pathway that will help us to understand what reconciliation healing really entails. He says, if he repents, do what? 
rebuke him again. If, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, rebuke him again, right? No? I'm just making sure you read what's on the wall. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he, if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, some of you are saying, okay, I'm waiting. What about the eighth time? And you understand that in, in, in this mode of communication that Jesus is using here, that we use these numbers to represent, you know, kind of open-endedness. Seven times 70 doesn't mean 490. It means as much as necessary. We've already talked about some of the, the things that help us to understand how it's one thing to, we must always forgive, but it doesn't mean that you always place yourself in the same position to allow people to hurt you the same way again. But we have the call, no matter how many times we've been betrayed, no matter how many times we've been hurt, to forgive. Now, let, let me shift here. But we're talking about, because notice that, that, uh, that he, he says here, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. There is a process when we're talking about forgiveness. And I was thinking about this with regard to uh, several situations around me in the world. And, um, there's this thing in Jeremiah 6.14. And, and the prophet, God speaks to the prophet concerning the other prophets, the, the bad prophets, in, in Jeremiah 6.14 and says this. Check these words. He says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And what that represents for me in the context of what we're talking about is the idea that sometimes we gloss over or heal lightly situations that require a more thoroughgoing process, a more intensive sometimes more invasive process. And sometimes we're guilty of forgiving lightly. And sometimes we are quick to say, I forgive someone when we haven't really gone through the process that forgiveness entails. Sometimes we have done that while at the same time denying the reality of the pain we're feeling. Sometimes we've said that when we haven't really owned up to the fact that we really are hurt and we try to disguise that or we try to even deceive ourselves and say, oh, it's all right, you know, in the current, you know, the current slang of our day, oh, it's all good, and you know it ain't all good. Oh, it's cool, and you know it ain't cool. And so we have to be careful because forgiveness needs to go through its appropriate process. There, there's an example, and we'll call it for the sake of, of, of discussion, this, 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 this couple, we'll call them Sue and Frank. And there's, there's, there's a case study of this couple, and what had happened was that Sue was trying to keep her marriage from falling apart when Frank confessed to marital unfaithfulness. And so for Frank's part, he was devastated by his guilt. He knew he had done wrong, and so to him... What happened was, Sue, as soon as it was, it, he confessed to Sue, just immediately said, oh, it's okay, baby, it's all right, I forgive you. And Frank was uneasy about it because it was something that wasn't right to him. He, and it's not that he wanted more punishment or that he wanted her to you know, beat him up or something, but it's just something wasn't right because it's like she 
clung to him so desperately is as though she was trying to deny the way that he had blatantly broken his marriage vows. And so they, they weren't able to be reconciled until, until Sue showed some reasonable and healthy anger at Frank for his betrayal. He needed that. Sometimes you need to tell people why you're upset with them. Sometimes you need to, 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 to vocalize. The Bible says be angry and do not sin. But telling the truth, speaking the truth in love is not sin. So it's important to deal squarely and honestly with offenses in order to get to a place of genuine forgiveness. And we often want to shortcut that process. We want forgiveness to happen just because, well, I got to forgive, so yeah, it's done. And you know you haven't forgiven. You know it's not done. And you know the, the residue of that grudge is still gnawing away at your soul and still chipping away at, at your integrity and still, still eating away at your emotions. Forgiving lightly. There's a process. Sometimes there are many of us in our lives, we've known what it was like to go through a genuine process of reconciliation and healing and forgiveness where wrongs were confronted or confessed or both, where disagreements were aired and even if there existed going forward an agreement to disagree, still... There was openness and honesty that led to, to the ability for the aggrieved party to genuinely from the heart make that effort. And for all of us, it's hard even when we want to forgive because there's something in us that, that wants to keep those grudges alive. It's called our fallen nature. But then that takes us to the next, next aspect, which is this. I want to remind you that forgiving is not necessarily forgetting talking about forgiving others. And, and we know the importance of forgiveness, and we, we're talking about that this morning, but alongside, we always talk about, well, you know what? I forgive and I forget. You know you ain't forgotten nothing. Oh, I tell you guys, I, I, I knew some folks coming up, man. People were talking in the 70s and 80s, and they were... They were they remembered something from 1951. You, you know what I'm talking about? And they say they forgave, but they, they show, and you know, remember back in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, you got to make sure married couples know this, love keeps no record of wrongs. But man, we got a tape recorder playing in our head. Okay, now it's digital. We got a hard drive, and we're recording data all the time. But forgiving is not necessarily forgetting. So don't suppose that because you haven't forgotten, you haven't forgiven. Alongside the word forgive, we hear that word forget, but we become confused as to how these two words relate. We become confused about the entire process of forgetting because in reality, healthy forgiveness requires remembering betrayal before forgetting it. Even though we may not like the taste of it. Memory, as a part of the process of forgiveness, is an essential ingredient in the medicine that kills the germs of hatred. Make no mistake about it. If this, these germs aren't killed, they'll kill you. If the germs of hatred are not killed, they will kill the hater, while the betrayer will go free. That is the big paradox of grudges. And I say this often, but it is, it is so paradoxical and so, and so universal 
You die and the person that you were mad at lives to be 115. And you're gone at 47 because the cancer of unforgiveness ate away at you emotionally and physically. It physically can kill you. Lewis Smeads articulates this point very eloquently. Despite the deceptive title of his famous book, Forgive and Forget, he makes this truth very clear to us. That, for, that remembrance precedes forgiveness and leads us to it. This is what Smeads wrote. He said, if you forgot, you will not forgive at all. And I would add, parenthetically, what is there to forgive if you can't remember anything? You can never forgive people for things you have forgotten about. You need to forgive precisely because you have not forgotten what someone did. Your memory keeps the pain alive long after the actual hurt has stopped. Remembering, he writes, is your storage of pain. It is why you need to be healed in the first place. And so while remembering disloyalties and betrayals, it's not a place that where we want to settle down and pitch our tent and live. It's a stop that we can't bypass on our journey toward healing. You hear what I'm saying? Remembering is not the place we want to stay, but it's the place we must go through. Now see, now you, somebody's saying, I'm telling you, somebody's thinking, they say, wait a minute now. I'm trying to be like Christ. I'm trying to be like God. Doesn't the Bible say that God himself, that he will, not, that he will forget our sins? Didn't he promise through Jeremiah, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more? Yes, Lord. Hello. I'll tell them, Jesus. But when we, to put that in context, we have to think about that promise and realize that God, and, and I, I, I've had to kind of even update the way I thought about this because I realize that God's mind being eternal and God being omniscient retains all events because the thing about it is your brain, your physical brain remembers and stores somewhere in there everything that has ever happened to you, everything you've ever seen, every word you've ever heard. It's in there. You just can't find it. The issue, that's why it's called recall. Because it's in there. It's tucked away in there. And you know, sometimes you're dreaming, you're like, you know, it's, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning, and you have these dreams and stuff pops in your dream from when you were a kid that you had forgotten about, and people show up, and, and crazy things. And because it's all in there in your subconscious. It's deep in your brain. And, 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 and so if that's you, how much more God the Heavenly Father? Everything is there. It doesn't, like, go away. That's not the point. And, and sins in particular because of God's nature. But Because he also says this in Jeremiah. He says that, that sins are engraved with an iron tool inscribed with a fine point. But what God is promising, hear me now, is not that he, uh, when we repent and when we throw ourselves on his mercy, he's not promising that, that he, he will forget our sins in the sense, in this cognitive sense, or forget them in the sense that the memory of them ultimately disappears. But what happens is this. He says, I will not remember your sins against you. I, I will not. God will never bear a grudge. God will not condemn us when we confess our sins, when we confess our imperfections. God forgets our sin in the sense of forgiving the guilt. That's all you need. That's what you need. 
our grudge bearing that we need to forget in the process of forgiving life's disappointments. Let me put it this way. It's our grudge bearing we need to forget and not the thing. There are things that happened to you as a kid you'll never forget. Don't, and don't drive yourself crazy and don't think that you're bad or less than a good Christian or corrupt because of those things. Oh, I gave that to Jesus. I prayed about it and I forgave him, but it still pops in my mind. We'll just steal. We'll just live with it. And by the grace of God and the blood of Jesus, it's over. It's in the past. You forgave them. God forgave you. He forgave them. If they repented, if not, that's between them and God. And you go on in your life and live in Jesus' name. You are not bound by that. Those memories will crop up. They'll pop in your head. You know, there will be something that will trigger a memory. You'll see somebody or talk to somebody. Or some relative will call you and start and something will, 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 will reoccur in your mind. Something will, will, will pop up in your head. And that's all right. You just got to learn how to talk to Jesus about that stuff and lay that stuff at the foot of the cross. Say, Lord, I, I resolve to get over that and forgive it. So I might remember those pictures. Some of you have been abused in your life and there are pictures and there are things and, and, and things that you went through that were horrible that you shouldn't have gone through. They were not the will of God. And when you went through that, Jesus wept alongside you just as you wept in your pain and your suffering. And those memories, I can't promise you, sometimes your subconscious mind will actually submerge those things and hide them to, to spare you but for many of us there are pictures and things that we just wish we, we could forget and we can't always and we pray and ask God to and sometimes he'll help us to, to push those things further back into our consciousness but the thing is this forgiveness is not necessarily synonymous with forgetting and so oftentimes we need to make sure that we walk through that path of remembering so we can get to the place of healing that's in forgiveness we need to forget the grudge bearing and then the second thing I hear a lot of talking back there there must be some good food going on I'm starting to smell it forgiving ourselves forgiving ourselves now we ourselves having betrayed others and see this is important because we've all sinned and we've all betrayed others we have to forgive ourselves. Smeeds writes regarding this in, in that same book. He says, the more decent we are, the more acutely we feel our pain for the unfair hurts we caused. Our pain becomes our hate. The pain we cause other people becomes the hate we feel for ourselves. For having done them wrong, we judge, we convict, and we sentence ourselves mostly in secret. And he goes on the right. He says, such folks are so decent and gentle that I hesitate to say to them the confrontational word. But it must be said, if God has forgiven us, who are we to condemn ourselves? He goes on. He says, if your guilt is, he says, is your guilt bigger than God's grace? Turn to somebody around next to you and say, is your guilt bigger than God's grace? Is your sin so special? So almighty that it's unforgivable? If so, isn't that the ultimate conceit? Is the cross, resurrection, and victory adequate or not? Is Jesus himself not enough? If God has taken from us the burden of guilt, who are we to snatch it back and insist on carrying it ourselves? Amen. Self-pity unseats Christ from the throne of our hearts. Make no mistake, however, that our own personal betrayals must be seen and named for the sins that they are. That's, it's a necessary stage in all self-forgiveness, a stage the Bible calls what? Repentance. 
But this is different from craving and holding on to the pity of others because of a misguided sense of heroism and and a piety that can make us turn down the healing that God offers to us. Think about in the Old Testament, very interesting, wonderful, amazing figure, David, the great king of Israel, called in Scripture, a man after God's own heart. I take comfort and solace in and David being called such because we know that David did not always behave as such. And David, in a, in, in a time of weakness in his life, committed very severe betrayal. He betrayed the nation of Israel as their leader. He betrayed Uriah the Hittite and, uh, when, as he slept with his wife. And he betrayed his wife Bathsheba in various ways. And he betrayed everybody involved by his sin and his misdeeds. David was convicted by God and he found himself at a place of repentance and in the Psalms we read if you read Psalm 51 you see his cry but you, in there there is not the casting off of himself or, or self rejection there is the, the plea for forgiveness and the acknowledgement that, he, that forgiveness comes and then Psalm 32 celebrates the joy of those whose sin is forgiven whose iniquity is covered And so David is an example of one who's gone through the process and walks and picks up himself and walks forward in the spirit of that forgiveness that is his and doesn't hold on to the self-pity. He does not fail to forgive himself. And that's the challenge you and I face. There's incredible freedom in self-forgiveness. And the bottom line is this. If God has promised to forgive our confessed sins and if Christ died to provide it, who are we to reject it? What does 1 John 1, 9 say? It says unequivocally, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then the third part in this series of of issues is the issue of forgiving God. I won't stand that long, but let me tell you this. It's very important that we forgive God for anything we hold against him for a bunch of reasons. But think about this. God never betrayed you. Sometimes we feel as though he has acted against us. Sometimes we feel as though he has betrayed us, that he has left us alone, that he has neglected us. Sometimes we feel that he's failed to protect us or that he's allowed. Or sometimes we feel that he's brought pain into our lives. But we need to resolve those issues we hold against God. I'll tell you what, he is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is our salvation. If we owe forgiveness to others, how much more do we owe forgiveness to our creator? If we owe forgiveness to those who have indeed betrayed us, then how much more do we need to forgive the one who in fact has never hurt us but has given his own son to secure our eternal blessing? We need to forgive God. And I've heard people, it's not an emotion that I'm in touch with, but I've heard numerous people through the years state that they were mad at God. And I'm not mad at them for being mad at God because some people, in a sense, they, they had the right because everybody has the right to feel what you feel. And they had the right to, to feel and to express that. I just would encourage people that that's not a place you want to stay. Yeah, I, don't wanna stay I wouldn't want to stay mad at my wife for long. I got to live in the house with her. She cooks me meals and stuff. Why would I stay mad at the, at the one upon whom I'm dependent for my every, everything in life? 
the one that I'm trusting for my protection, for my care, for my eternal soul. Why would I, why would I want to remain angry at him? If you're mad at God, this is what you do. You get alone, you and Jesus, you and God, and you, you have, in the words of the old song, have a little talk with Jesus. You tell him what you feel. Tell him why you're upset. Lay it on the table. Shout. If you need to, throw stuff. I don't care. You can put God in the proverbial chair and talk to him. And he, you know what? Guess what? God, God can handle it. God can handle it. All your anger, all your bitterness, all your mess. God, and, and you know what? And, and, and he's not going to turn on you. He's not going to, don't worry about lightning bolts. But probably don't do this standing in an open field in the Midwest during the spring. But don't worry about lightning bolts. God, in his love and his mercy, can, can handle your pain. And I guarantee you, if you're honest with him, he's going to surround you with his love and place his loving arms of care and concern around you and bring healing to your life. Now listen. Now, go back. Go back. Yeah. So then, finally, we're talking about getting over it, and this is the issue. Getting on with it. We're, this is the goal, living in forgiveness. Right? It's not just an act. It's, it's not like uh, I, I say to you, Bible says we as Christians must forgive. He said, well, you know, I, I forgave somebody 40 years ago. It's like, okay, that's not the point. The point is that we must live in forgiveness. That needs to be a lifestyle for us. In order to get on with life, we need to embrace the importance of being vulnerable. We need to realize the importance of, of replacing that rigidity of our grudge-bearing ways, if you know what I'm talking about. You know that if you, if you are a grudge-bearer, there's a certain rigidity, there's a certain tightness, a certain stiffness, a certain inflexibility, a certain hardness, certain pain. We need to replace that with the flexibility that comes from living with openness and vulnerability and forgiveness. We could sum it all up in these three words. Living is forgiving. Living is forgiving. You got that? If you don't remember anything else, remember those three words. Living is forgiving. Being realistic about betrayals of our past, being realistic about our pain, allowing ourselves to be appropriately vulnerable. Vulnerability can be painful, but grudge-bearing is worse. Vulnerability can be hard work, but grudge-bearing is lethal. Vulnerability can be a challenge, but grudge-bearing totally kills the soul. So that's the choice we face, and that's what's before us. Living is forgiving. So forgiveness involves, in conclusion, these three things. Number one, acknowledging our own tendency, tendency to betray others. Forgiving others, ourselves, and God. And living in forgiveness. Now, when I say these things, it does sound, doesn't it, somewhat humanly impossible. The reason why so many people in the world around us don't live these ideals out is, number one, because they have not taken seriously the call to follow Jesus. Jesus says, if any of you would come after me and be my disciples, take up your cross and follow me, right? 
And to do that means we have to listen and take a hard look at, at what Jesus says. And we have to, to take seriously what he's commanded us. And we have to really grapple with this stuff and deal with it if you want to be a Christian. Now, if you don't want to be a Christian, you can just do it the way everybody else does. And you can just allow your soul to fill up with all kinds of grudges and all kinds of stuff. But you won't, I'm going to be as bold to say that you cannot be a Christian in the biblical sense living that way. And it is to live this way that, that this, this word describes is... It seems, and it is really, humanly speaking, impossible. And so we're left with this kind of agony. You ever read Romans 7? You know, the Apostle Paul goes to this, this thing about the flesh and the spirit. He says, wow. He says, you know, the good that I do, I don't do. And the, the bad that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. And, he, and he, at the end, he says, wow, I mean, I'm just, I'm just this, this, this ball of confusion, this, 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 this paradox and this contradiction all rolled up in the one. He says, he says well, who shall deliver me? He said, oh, wretched man that I am, oh, miserable person that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How do I get out of this conundrum? And that's sometimes how we feel because we're human and we have weaknesses and we have, we have, we have deficiencies. We're sinners by nature. We, we're betrayers ourselves and it's, it's hard to forgive and, and you can't forget. And, and, it, and we, life is complex and life is, has all these, all these layers to it. And a lot of us have been through a lot of stuff and Jesus understands that and is not at all minimizing your pain. If anything, he's asking you to not minimize your pain, but to do the real thing and to do real, to find real solutions rather than the, the culturally popular solutions, which are basically to stuff it, to, to, to hold it, to use it as a sword against other people, to just go the way of the world. But it's hard. Paul says in Romans 7, how, how do I, man, I'm, I'm caught up in this kind of misery between my, the, the, my, the flesh and the spirit. And, and, but but this, thank God that it turns the corner in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Because he says this. He, it's like if you read Romans, if you didn't read it with the chapter divisions, you just would come to that, you know. He says at the end, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And he goes on to say a couple of things. And he says, he says, there is therefore now. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Don't you see that that's where the answer is? The answer is you can't do it in your own strength. The answer is you can't do it. It's not merely the works of the law. It's not God saying, here's the code. You got to do this or you're going to hell. The point is this, that God says, this is the way to live, but here's the deal. You can't do it in your own strength, but I have placed my spirit in you and I have given you my love and my grace and there's no condemnation. When you try and fail, I don't slap you down. When you miss the mark, I will reach out and love you and pick you up. There is no condemnation, but the law the righteousness of the law will be fulfilled in you as you walk not after the spirit, not after the flesh rather, but after the spirit. No condemnation. There is hope. There is help. There is power. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has delivered you and me from the power of sin and death. And will deliver us, if we are willing, from the death of grudge bearing liberating us into the glorious freedom of a life filled with forgiveness and trust and appropriate vulnerability and grace and mercy. That's what I want. That's what I'm going for. How about you?
bow your heads with me. A real simple prayer this morning.